Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. If you have your Bibles with you today, we're, gonna, we're still going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to be in kind of that middle section of verses, uh, James 1 verse 12 to 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Either you can use one from the pew in front of you, or you can see on the screen here that I'll have some, I'll have some Bible scripture or some scripture verses up there as well that you can follow along with there. Let's do a quick recap from what we learned last week. So James, as we learned, is writing to the Jewish Christians who are enduring hardships in, in various nations that they are now living in. He encourages them to take joy and teaches them about God's purpose in enduring those testings of their faith. Because it means that by enduring, they are learning to persevere. And persevering is what produces maturity and completeness in God's eyes. So there's a point to all of that kind of thing that they're going through. And then what we also learned is that we can ask God for wisdom and he generously gives it to us so that we can know how to persevere in trials. Because it's one thing to say, hang in there, buddy, you're going to be okay. It's another thing to know how God wants us to handle a certain situation. And he gives us grace to know his will so that we can operate in it. And then finally, through trial or though trials make our circumstances seem dire, We are in a high position simply because of our faith that has joined us together with Jesus Christ. That's something that we can never forget. Our circumstances do not define us. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what defines us. So I'm going to pray one more time here, and then we're going to dive into uh, the beginning of verse 12. Lord, please take your word and just fill our hearts with understanding. Fill us with a desire to obey it and to walk in the light of Christ. That's what we want. That's what we need. For you are the one who brings change. And that's why we come to you, Father, to learn from your word. Amen. All right. So let's start with verse 12 this week. I'm not going to read the whole uh, piece of scripture together, but we're just going to kind of go verse by verse. The first, uh, the first verse here is, is kind of a weird one because it could have gone with what we talked about last week. It kind of goes with what we're talking about this week. Are those words dancing or is it just my eyes? It's just me? Okay, thanks. I'm just kidding. Well, whatever. We can read it. It's all good. Uh, so <laughs> it's, like, it's like there's a mirage or a pool of water in front of us or whatever. Maybe we should have a baptism. I don't know. Whatever. I can read it. You can read it too. So verse 12 from James 1 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So reading this verse, there is an important relationship between perseverance and love that we're going to discover together. The one who perseveres through trials is what? They are blessed, this verse says. So what is the blessing that the one who perseveres is going to receive? It's called the crown of life. A crown is something that represents honor. Kings wear crowns because, or queens wear crowns because we look at them. It's like we're supposed to honor them. They're in a high position. We give them respect, right? So a crown is what God wants to give us. Our honor, if we endure as our faith is being tested, is a crown or an honor of eternal life with Christ. 
And this is not just an earthly honor that we should be looking for here, because if we look for it, we may find glimpses of it, but eternal life with Christ is something that we're going to see when we are sitting with him in glory in heaven. So this honor, this crown of life is an eternal heavenly honor. This is important to note because when we're offered an honor or when we're offered a reward or a prize or whatever you want to call it, our eyes and our hearts are then drawn to where that honor is. If someone says, hey, you won the lottery, you just have to go claim it. Well, where do I got to go? I want to make tracks. I want to get there, right? Because that's where the, the reward is. When my kids get a token for ice cream from the queue, that little wooden nickel or whatever that thing is, they, all they think about is the queue. They can't wait to go back there. And they say day after day, Dad, when can we go to the queue? We want to cash in our wooden coin. If we were in Canada, we'd call it a loony probably, right? It's about a loony size. That's a dollar in Canada, not a description for me. Uh, so, so yeah, when you, when you have a prize somewhere, when you have a reward that someone's offering you, and they say, this is where it is, That's where their focus is. You can't wait to get to heaven because that's where the crown of eternal life is. So this is actually a biblical concept, wanting ice cream from the queue. So Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above not on earthly things. Okay, so there it is again. Another reminder for us to set our mind on Christ. For he is our reward. He is the one who holds our crown of eternal life. So it would make sense that our focus is on him since he's the one who holds our reward. It's not here on earth. Ah, okay, very good. The crown of life is God calling us to set our attention on him. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, where your reward or your honor is, there your heart will be also, right? And where our heart is really, really, really matters. Because if my heart is on the reward that I can get from working hard here on earth, and I can get money, I can get status, I can get a new car, I can get a new house, I can get, you know, all these kinds of things that benefit me here and now. If that's where my heart is, if that's the greatest treasure and reward in my life, then Jesus isn't. And that's a sad place to be, right? Because everything that we can receive here on earth, it might be fine, it's not necessarily sinful or bad, but it doesn't last forever. The crown of eternal life does. And that's a good thing for us to realize. So if we treasure the blessings God gives us, then naturally our heart needs to be focused on God. Who does God give this blessing, this crown of eternal life to? It says to those who love him. This is interesting because at first, this crown is for those who persevere. Blessed is the one who perseveres, for they will receive the crown of life. Oh, so there's the persevering who received this crown. And then it also says, but he gives it to those who love him. See, this is the interesting relationship between persevering and love that I noticed for the first time, even though this is one of my favorite passages. So I thought about this and I wondered, well, is this, is this a misprint? Is this like a contradiction? And I thought the more, the more I thought about it, though, this makes sense. Because who is the kind of person that we would persevere for if we're being tested or tried or, or being challenged to endure? Would we persevere for someone who we are very casual about in our emotions and feelings? No, not at all. But would you persevere through absolute hell for someone that you love? Absolutely. 
through thick and thin, we would persevere for our, through our, for our spouse because I stood before my wife and my family and our friends when we got married and, and our pastor asked us, do you vow to make this work, to love this person no matter what? And I said, yes. I should have said I do, but I got nervous and I just said, yes, you know, whatever, of course. And Karen said I do. She got it right. But we, nonetheless, the emotion was the same. Yes, of course, we love this person, so we will persevere. So in the same way that we would do that here on earth, God is saying, if you love me, I'm sure you'll persevere. And I want you to persevere because you love me. Do you see the relationship between these two things? It's a small thing, but I think it's really important. Our love for Jesus is shown in how we persevere in faith. So perseverance even though sometimes we say this is just something that I need to put up with or I need to get through, look at it more as an act of worship. Look at perseverance as an act of, of faith or adoration or an act of love to Jesus. Even though it seems like, oh, maybe this is the hand of God offering discipline. Maybe it is. But persevering in it nonetheless shows your love for him. I love this because it gives even a greater purpose to this persevering that we talked about last week. I love that. So this is great. We could have stopped there, but there's so much more in James. So let's keep going this morning. Verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So trials and tests that we talked about last week, they differ slightly from the temptation that we're reading about right here, right now. It's the motive of these two things that sets them apart. Trials and tests are, are brought into our life and they have one set of motives, right? They're meant to produce maturity and completeness so that we're not lacking anything. Those are good motives. That's what we learned last week. Temptations, however, are a different set of motives. They're very different than tests and trials. When we face a test or trial, we're being qualified for something. But when we face a temptation, it does not yield a positive result. It does not qualify us for something or cause any sort of maturity or completeness. Temptation's purpose, as we'll see in a moment, is to cause us to sin. That's it. And that's all. So does God desire for us to sin? That may seem like a silly question, but for some of us who think that when I'm going through something really difficult and we say, well, God's tempting me and I need to figure out how to, how to handle this temptation, we have to ask this question. Because if we understand the answer to it, we'll understand if God, as James says it, is the one who's testing us or not. So does God desire for us to sin? No. Absolutely not. He desires for us to be righteous and holy and innocent, certainly not sinful. Everything about sin is repulsive to God. Proverbs 15 verse 9 says, The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. So God does not want us to sin. So in order to be consistent with his character and desires, no. God does not tempt us to sin. It would be totally counterproductive to his nature and his will for our lives. In fact, God doesn't even want us to know how to do evil. If you read Romans 16 verse 19, anyone grew up like going to youth group in the 90s here? A couple of us? Romans 16, 19 says, does anyone remember that song? Maybe I'm the only one. I'll stop singing in that case. But nonetheless, that verse says, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. 
Not just be innocent about doing evil, but be innocent about what evil even is. So God provides us with what we need so that we will be like him and turn away from our sin. He doesn't want us to even know how to do it. He wants us to be instead fully developing and and, and maturing to become like him. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So So we can't blame God for the temptations that we experience. We can't be misinformed about this and and place blame on him when squarely it does not belong there. Temptation doesn't originate with him because temptation's only purpose is to bring about sin. And God cannot be tempted or seduced to do evil. We we see that in this verse too. And if you think about Jesus' temptation in the desert, when Satan was was attempting to cause Jesus to to slip up or to to fall, that's, that's something that we see where Jesus could not be tempted. So because of that characteristic, he also does not tempt people as well. Therefore, big but coming up here in verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Ah, here we see the... The harsh truth. Temptation is actually all about me. It's a me issue. Okay? But wait a second here, Pastor Jeff. Shouldn't this verse say that we are tempted when Satan drags us away and entices us? Nope. Sorry, I wish that we could, we could put the blame on someone else and we could wash our hands and be totally innocent and say, No, it's not my fault. It's Satan. It's the devil. He made me do it. But that's not the way it works. Often when it comes to temptation, we give too much focus to the devil and we we blame him. I've heard so many people say over the years, the devil is tempting me or the devil made me do it or Satan just won't leave me alone. Can the devil tempt us? Yes, yes, he can. We see evidence of that in the Bible. Remember the serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve. Remember Job. Satan was allowed to do all sorts of things to try to knock Job off of his faith. Think about Jesus once again in the desert. There's multiple examples of our enemy, the devil, tempting us to disobey or wander away from God. But James reveals that we have our own evil desires as well. The Apostle Paul, for instance, he recognized evil desires in his own life. Romans 7, verse 18 and 19. For I know that that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So is there a a sinful nature, his own evil desires within him that are fighting? Absolutely, right? And he also explains this even more in Galatians 5.17. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Ah, these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Man, that's a sobering verse, isn't it? That one, that has stuck with me for so many years. What's up with this evil desire? Why, why do we still have this sinful nature? Hasn't Jesus dealt with all of this when I trusted in him, when I gave my life to him and he saved me by his grace? Why do sinful desires still run amok in my life? My, my answer is, is this. God doesn't brainwash us so that we're incapable of sinning. He forgives us so that we're not condemned by our sin. 
That's a good God, right? Like, yes, if I was God and in my foolishness, I maybe would say, perfect, I'm just going to eradicate sin so no one can even do it. But then people wouldn't be loving me because they would have no choice. They wouldn't be sinning, right? But God wants us to choose to love him. He wants us to desire to love him, to desire to walk in, in his ways instead of in our own flesh. So that's why I believe on this earth, God still gives us a choice. He hasn't made us fall into sin. He just says, hey, I have a better way. Are you interested in walking with me? If you choose to deny yourself and take up your cross, right? Like all those things. He puts the ball in our court. He's not going to twist our arm. Romans 6 verse 6 says, and this is from the Amplified Version, we know that our old self from our human nature without the Holy Spirit was nailed to the cross with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the person who has died with Christ has been freed from the power of sin. Right? So there it is. Jesus has freed us from the power of sin, the authority, the ownership, the mastery that it had over us. When we're forgiven, Jesus says, all those sins that condemned you and that separated you from me, I've dealt with those things so that they no longer condemn you. Are you still capable of sinning? Yeah, but that's your choice. I'm I'm not asking you to keep on sinning. In fact, I'm inviting you to walk in light, to walk in newness of life. Would you choose that now instead of choosing to walk in the flesh? So yes, Jesus has absolutely addressed our old self, our sinful nature. He offered us legal forgiveness, rendering sin's effect on us to to be totally defeated. This is what Jesus has done for us. And now, like I've said, here's the response that Jesus is looking for. Here's where the ball is in our court. Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. So that's our job. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So we have to let the spirit work in our lives. If we're not interested in in changing to become more like God, that's fine. He's not going to force us to be, but it's not at his demise. It's at our own. So that's why God says, hey, let me work in you. You have to let me work in you, but it will be a good thing. This new nature from God is meant to replace our old nature. And it's it's up to us to take steps to make that happen. Um, Where are we here? Let me just see here. So we're being instructed in this Ephesians passage to, to put off the old, to put on the new. And, and yes, Christ has won the war over sin, but there still is this human side to this thing. There's this effort that we are meant to put up. A great hope for me when I face temptation to sin, because I don't want to do it, but I know that that temptation still lurks. So even though I know that I'm supposed to put on this new nature, I'm battling this old nature, my decisions are never free from this conflict. A great verse that gives me a lot of hope to, to, to walk away from sin is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Three things I just want to highlight from this passage here, because I think this complements what James is saying so well. First, we're not alone. When we're tempted, we are not alone, okay? We're not the only miserable soul on this planet that has ever gone through the thing that we're going through. 
There's lots of other people, probably more people than, than would ever admit it, are going through the exact same temptation that you are. So first of all, I just want you to know that you are not as miserable and as lonely and as insufferable as you think you are. And I'm saying that because I know that's how I feel. When I'm tempted, I know that I feel miserable. And I, and I think no one else is fighting this way. But we're in this fight together, actually. The temptations that we we feel we could never admit are likely the things that more people than we could ever imagine are going through. Satan wants you to think that no one else could possibly go through something as despicable as you are when it comes to temptation. But God's word tells us the truth. When it comes to temptation, it's actually a level playing field. We are all susceptible to every sin on the face of this earth. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We all need Christ in the exact same way. So that's just a reassurance. Like, hey, you're not alone. We're all getting tempted. So let's just take a deep breath and look forward. Second, God hasn't abandoned us just because we're being tempted. He is with us. He's faithfully abiding with us as we choose to abide with him. He knows where we're at in our faith. If we're young Christians figuring this thing out, if we're veteran Christians and we've been walking with the Lord for years, he knows what we can handle. And he knows what will be too much based on the faith that he has given us. He protects us from being unable to stand. In fact, he helps us to stand when we feel like there's no possible way. Second Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness or my susceptibility to temptation so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's a good thing to know that God is standing with us, that he's enduring with us, and that he is he's giving us all that we need to, to hang in there. And third... He always shows us a way out of the temptation. He offers a solution. We're never without an escape plan when it comes to temptation. In the last couple of weeks, I had a temptation to sin pop up in my life. Oh, pastor, I can't believe you're admitting that. Get real. We've all been there, right? Let's, who sinned in the last week? Okay, for those of you who didn't put your hands up, you just sinned right now. <laughs> I love you, and you love me, and we're in this together. Okay. So in, this, in the last couple of weeks, I just was facing this temptation to do something that I know would be a compromise to my faith. I didn't want to do it, but for some reason, this temptation just was sinking its teeth into me. I knew in my spirit that I didn't want to compromise, but my flesh was calling me into something that I certainly didn't want to do. I thought of this verse, this verse that we just read, and I said, Lord, what is the way out Show me the way out so that I can escape this temptation. And God showed me a clear path that would help me to avoid making a foolish compromise. Was it easy to take that path? Was it easy to say, oh, there's the exit sign. Yeah, let's just run for that. Was it easy? No, because your decisions are never free from that conflict, right? When you have evil fighting and good fighting, they're clashing within you. The battle of the spiritual realms is real in your heart. And God is saying, hey, here's the exit sign. It's not going to be easy, but I promise you that if you walk towards it, if you take a step in that direction, I will be faithful to you. You don't even have to want to do it, but if you choose to do it, I'm even that faithful. God gives us such good desires, even through our obedience, when we don't know how to desire these things for ourselves, God walks with us. So I had to fight against this, and God showed me the way out. I took it. 
I, I took it and I took it and I took it. It was step after step after step. It wasn't one foul swoop and I was delivered and it was like miraculous and all this stuff. It was day after day that I had to walk towards the light that God was showing me. But did he give me a way out? Absolutely. And boy, am I ever thankful that God gave me that. But we have to sometimes stop and say, Lord, this is what I'm going through right now. What is your escape plan? Because I don't even see it right now. I just have tunnel vision and all I can see is the thing that I'm trying to avoid. That's why we need to stop and pray. That's why we need to abide. We need to know God's word. If we're not in God's word, likely we will not hear from him in prayer. Because our our minds will be so fixed on other things, it'll be very difficult to understand what God's will is for us in those moments of temptation. Praise God that he shows us the way out. James continues talking about this evil desire within us. He says in verse 15, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So here's the continuation of this chain of events that can spell the destruction of a person if they allow sin to reach its full potential. The chain of events, it starts with temptation. But temptation, it attempts to stir up evil desires within us. And when we give in to those evil desires, when we give them time and space in our lives, then sin is born. We can deal with sin very quickly. The Bible gives us some great opportunities to do that by turning back to Jesus in humility, admitting the, right, the wrong thing that we've done, and asking Jesus for his forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9, write that passage down and look it up for yourselves at home. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you to be curious so that you look in the word of God and find out what it says to you. This is God's forgiveness, his plan for you, okay? We can deal with, we can deal with sin in our lives. God gives us wonderful tools in order to do it. And David, actually, he did this. When he sinned, he had, to, uh, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then in Psalm 51, verse 7 through 12, here's his prayer of asking for forgiveness and redemption. It says, purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep me looking at my sins Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And make me willing to obey you. I love that last line. Make me willing to obey you. Change the desires of my heart so that they are like the desires that your heart has for me, Jesus. Doing this prevents us or prevents sin from growing and causing more and more damage in our lives. Repentance addresses a sin issue and brings us back into restored relationship with Jesus. However, when we do not repent... And we do not seek forgiveness from God and we allow sin to linger in our lives. It grows. It does not stay the same. It is like a vicious weed that wants to take over the whole garden. Verse 15 continues saying, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Not just physical death. We're all going to die someday. Spiritual death. And spiritual death is eternal separation from Jesus Christ. That's the kind of death that I fear for the world around us. I do not want anyone to die. 
not knowing who Jesus is. And Jesus says he's even being patient in his return because he doesn't want anyone to miss out on knowing him and entering into heaven with him upon his arrival back here on earth. Sin is like a cavity. If we ignore it, it grows and becomes more painful. It spreads and increases in size until it affects the whole tooth down to the root. Then when the root is infected, the tooth dies and needs to be pulled. Sin does the same thing to us. If we leave sin alone, if we ignore it, if we pretend, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody sins. Nobody's perfect, right? It causes deeper and deeper and deeper damage in our lives. It runs amok and will destroy us. James tells us that sin, when it is full grown or gains strength in our lives, leads to death. Maybe at this point, some of us are wondering, can enough sin piled up in our lives even cause us to lose salvation. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone. I don't want, I don't, I'm not that kind of preacher. I, I, I'm a, I like to be encouraging and offer hope. But this is a good self-evaluation question. Because if our minds go there, perhaps it's worth investigating just so we can find out what the truth is. So yeah, does enough sin piled up in our lives cause us to lose our salvation? Let me first of all say this. No amount of sin, no amount of sin is too great for God to forgive. He's the one, once once again, who preached 70 times seven, right? For like, just continue to forgive. Even when someone sins against you in the same way over and over and over again, right? That's what he taught us to his disciples. So naturally, he's going to have that kind of forgiving nature. But if we sin willingly, if we have no desire to change our sinful ways. If we intentionally walk away from God and towards a lifestyle of sinful indulgence, then yes, if there is no change of heart, we can certainly lose our salvation. I'm not saying that because I want you to go to this dark place, but we need to be aware. We don't want to be going blissfully along thinking everything's okay. And then have at the end of days where the Lord says to us, depart from me. I never knew you. Right? So God says that that's a true thing that will happen to some people who think that their lives are A-OK. Let's not be duped into believing that we're A-OK when we're living a sinful life. We have to be ready to evaluate. We have to be ready to take control of these sins by giving them back to God in confession, repentance, remorse. We have to put on what is good and put off the evil nature, right? All these things. Be comforted though, okay, friends? Because this doesn't happen by accident. To to lose our salvation, we need to make a choice to deny Jesus. And you will consciously choose. You will look at your life and say, yeah, I don't really care. And that will be your choice right there and then. You will know. But you can't accidentally lose your salvation if your heart desires to be honoring to Jesus. 2 Timothy 2 verse 11 to 13. It contrasts staying with Jesus versus walking away with Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So the second or half of verse 12 here pretty clearly speaks to what we've been talking about, about, you know, temptation leading to death. 
and death being spiritual and, whoa, can I lose my salvation? That's what I believe verse 12 is talking about. It says here that if we disown Jesus, Jesus, uh, or, or saying something like, Jesus is not the son of God, I don't believe in Jesus, I reject Jesus and his offer for forgiveness, all those kinds of thoughts, then Jesus will as well disown us and our salvation will be lost. Many people misunderstand the last verse, verse 13 from this passage. They take it as a reassurance, thinking, huh, no matter what I do, even if I am not faithful, God remains faithful. So perfect. That is my license to do whatever I want, and all will be forgiven. This verse is misused by a group of people who believe once saved, always saved. I used to be, in my younger years, a person who believed once saved, always saved. I had heard some teaching about it. I thought, yeah, that sounds great. That's what I want to believe. But that's not the truth. Okay? It is not the truth. Verse 13 Understanding verse, or understanding verse 13 correctly comes from focusing on the very last line. For he cannot disown himself. Of course, Jesus is always in agreement with himself, right? He agrees with his word, his blessings, his promises. But also he agrees with his judgments, his wrath, and his justice. Jesus isn't just the gentle shepherd. He is also the judge. The judge of the living and the dead. Being faithful for Jesus means not allowing someone to experience eternal life who has disowned him. You see where I'm going with this? So verse 13 is saying, even if we are unfaithful to Jesus, Jesus remains faithful to Jesus. If we walk away from him, he's not going to make an exception for us. He will still love us. Absolutely. But he is not going to say, well, yeah, they didn't really believe in me. They didn't really love me, but ah, what the heck? You know, crown of life, just get in here. Let's just figure this out once we get to heaven. That's not how it works. He remains faithful to his righteousness and his commands always. So yes, what James is saying is true. Sin, unaddressed and unrepented of, can cause spiritual death and a loss of salvation, even to those who are Christians. Once again, to put your minds at ease, this sort of thing can't happen by accident. If you love Jesus and you want to do right according to him, he knows that desire in you. He knows the desires of your heart probably better than you do. It's only when we make up our minds saying, I don't care about God, what God says. Only when we say, I don't want him, I don't need him. That's an intentional turning away from God. A couple of passages I would just encourage you to check out for your own personal study this week, if you like, would be Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 to 20. And 1 John 5, verse 16 to 17. These just add a little bit more food for thought. We just don't have time to go over these. James is spelling, out, spelling this out for us. He doesn't want his readers to be confused about two things, the origin of sin and the consequences of sin. And he certainly doesn't want people to blame God for their own folly, right? Well, I can read those again. I heard he's talking. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 to 20. And 1 John 5. Verse 16 to 17. If you need those after the service, just come and find me. That's totally cool. So all of this is leading up to why um, James states in verse 16, he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers, because he's setting the record straight here. There's been a confusion. He says, no, here's the way it is. This is the truth. Don't fall victim to a lie. Then he reminds us of what the truth is, just in a very positive statement in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Don't be deceived or tricked or misunderstand who God is. 
No, he doesn't lead us into temptation. He doesn't allow trials and tests into our lives so that we'll be driven away from him. Not, that's not it at all. Here's the truth. God gives us good gifts. One of those is wisdom, right? He says you can ask and receive it. But he also gives many other good gifts because he is good. He is the source of all goodness. He gave us life when he created us in his image. He gave, the, he gave us the world that he created for our enjoyment to, to be in dominion over the world. He gave us purpose in our lives when we live for him. He gave us eternal life when we trusted in him. He gave us rest when we were weary and burdened by the ways of this world. He gave us forgiveness as he gave us his son. What a gift that is. And these characteristics of goodness and generous giving is who God is eternally and consistently. God is a giver of good gifts. That is his nature. It will never change, right? Not like these shifting shadows that it talks about. He's not fickle. He's, he's a God who doesn't change depending on his mood or our behavior. God is consistent the same yesterday, today, and forever. Loving, merciful. Malachi 3 verse 6. I love how succinct this verse is. Some Old Testament stuff is just so wonderful this way. God is saying to the prophet Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. If you know me this way, this is how I am. I'm not going to change. You don't have to worry that I'm going to be some different kind of guy that you have to figure out tomorrow. I'm the same today as I'm going to be tomorrow. Days may change one from another. Culture may change as we see it changing rapidly around us. People change, but God is constant and true. His abiding interest, his love, and his care for us are here to stay. What an amazing God. Verse 18, the last one that we're going to look at today, he says that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The, the most outstanding example of God's constant goodness is that he has given us a new birth. Temptation leads us to sin and sin leads us deceitfully into spiritual death. And we have all fallen into that spiritual death at one point or another. God, through Jesus Christ, has given us new spiritual life. Through Jesus, we have been born into this life. We've been born again. We've been entered back into the relationship with God that we were always meant to have, but that sin stole away from us. How did, how did this happen? Or how did, or, or how did this, or he, sorry, he did this so that we could be first fruits out of everything that he created. When James says that we are God's first fruits, he's saying that God has chosen us out of anything and everything he could have possibly chosen. He chose people us to be consecrated or set apart as his own it wasn't an accident it wasn't a coincidence it wasn't something that god was coerced into he by his own desires chose us because he loves us and through us receiving forgiveness for our sins from god we are being specially designated as god's people first peter 2 verse 9 amazing verse says but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It was God's desire that you and I be saved from our sins and receive his special purpose in our lives, to persevere in faith, to cling to the cross, to walk in the light, and to the glory of God. This is the truth above all other truth that we need to know. So here's the thing. We've talked a lot about 
salvation today, to be honest. We've talked about spiritual death, which is something that we've all faced because of sin has entered our lives. But before that, like I said before, God actually created us in perfect relationship with him. He created us to know him and love him in the same way that he knows and loves us. We were meant to be intimately and eternally connected with him, never to depart. But when we, by our own sinful desires, like James says, when we looked and we saw a a better, or in our mind, what we thought was a better alternative to God, we said, you know, God, I see this love and this relationship, but I think I can get all that stuff on my own. I don't need to follow all your rules in order to be happy, right? So let's just, let's just call it what it is, and I'm going to go do my thing, and I'll see you later. That's what sin was in our lives. We all walked away from God following the lustful desires of our hearts. Falling into sin caused us to not be temporarily separated from God, but eternally. The consequences are not just a flash in the pan. It's like, whoops, sorry, made a mistake there. And as soon as we realize that we sinned, we can just make things better. Actually, I can't make things better. I'm a sinful, fallen, broken person. How can I make things better? Because I'm already broken, I can't fix things, right? So in knowing this, some people, they think, well, if, as long as I'm good from this point on in my life, as long as I stop sinning, surely everything's going to be okay. Because I sin till here, then I realize like, I shouldn't sin anymore, and now I'll live perfect. Problem with that, okay? First of all, it's impossible to live perfectly. I don't know anyone who's ever done it, and I'd love to meet that person who thinks they've done it because they haven't, okay? That's the honest truth. So what we really needed was instead of ourselves to think that we can get back to God by being good, we just needed God to make a way for us. And that's what Jesus did because there's a penalty associated with sin. It's spiritual death, like we've talked about. It's eternal separation from God. It's being condemned and it's going to hell instead of heaven. But what God did was he said, I don't like this. And I know that my people are never going to be able to write this situation, but I can. So here I'm going to send my son. He's never sinned. And I know that he will never give in to sin. I'm going to send him to earth and he's going to die a death that these people deserve because I want them to be forgiven. He's going to trade places with them. So essentially you and I, we were all in murderer's row. We were, we were standing in line at the penitentiary waiting for the electric chair. And God came and tapped us all on the shoulder and said, Hey, I'd like to make you an offer. If you believe that my son loves you enough that he would die for you, you can step out of line. You can be forgiven, all your charges will be dismissed, and you can have relationship with me like you were supposed to, like I created you to. So that's how this works. Everyone who accepts that offer says, yeah, you know what, Lord, I can't do this on my own. You are the way. You are the truth. No one can receive this eternal life unless they put their trust fully in you. That's exactly what I want. And when we make that decision... Forgiveness for sins past, present, and future is locked in. It's given to us. We then are charged, like we saw in Ephesians 4, to walk in that new decision that we've made, to walk in that relationship. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's the beginning of a new life where we walk with Jesus. And this life, it's amazing because it doesn't just start when we get to heaven. It starts right here, right now. It could start in this very room for you today. If you so choose, let's just, let's pause right here for a second. I would really love if we would close our eyes and think this through, because this is not a decision I want to coerce you into or convince you of, but it's a decision that we all need to give some serious thought to. You've heard 
the scriptures today. You've heard about the offer of God for eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, where he offers us forgiveness for the penalty for our sins. You've heard that sins, sins condemn us to death, but Jesus gives us eternal life for those who persevere in faith, for those who choose to love him. Even if you're in your mind, the understanding of what this looks like is pretty small. If you understand that your life isn't where you want it, and you want this eternal life of love and righteousness that God talks about, that's enough to make a decision. And then you begin walking it out. So God is offering to you today to make this choice. Our, our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. No one's looking. It's just you and me and God. If today, in this very moment, you want to make a change, and you want to turn fully to Jesus, accepting his forgiveness admitting your sins to him and walking free from those things. Why don't you put up your hand just as a sign for you and me and God. We're the only ones looking. Thank you. I see that hand. Amen. Yeah, I see that hand. Thank you. This choice is something that will change your life. God loves you so much. All he wants for you to do is walk in the freedom that he is offering. Thank you. Let's pray, and then we're going to have a, a closing song. Lord Jesus, your forgiveness is just out of this world. I thank you, Lord, that through this passage in James, we have a better understanding of this temptation and just how sinister it is that it leads us away from you. But Lord, we fully say and we fully recognize here this morning that that's not what we desire. And even if it is, if, even if we think, well, maybe that is what I desire, that's not what we desire to desire. Lord, we want what you want. And Father, as, as we contemplate these truths more this week, as we think more about temptation and its sinister acts in our lives, I pray that we will continually turn to you, that we will continually repent and allow you to deal with the sin that we cannot deal with. But when we come to you, Father, you are so good and so merciful. Your love endures forever. For anyone who's wondering, Lord, for anyone who's debating in their heart right now whether they ought to turn to you or not i pray that you would not let them rest until they would find closure on that decision give us a heart that longs for you jesus amen